welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigg-Hauger, and I'm a communicator here at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. If you're over 18, it's possible you've never touched TikTok. Nevertheless, over the last few years, the app has increasingly helped shape popular culture. TikTok as we know it now was born when the company ByteDance acquired an app called Musical.ly in 2017. It has been a tool for young activists, an entertainment channel, and of course, a flashpoint in US-China relations. But why this app and why now? Today I'm talking with Ilaria Karotza, who will help answer that question. Ilaria is a senior researcher at Prio, where she looks at security assistance provided to countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia, as well as artificial intelligence as a frontier of U.S.-China competition. She's lived in China and holds a Ph.D. in international relations from the London School of Economics. So welcome, Ilaria. Thanks for joining me today to talk about a subject that I'm interested in, so I'm being a little bit self-indulgent with this topic. Uh, TikTok and U.S.-China relations. So let's start off with what is TikTok and why is it in the middle of this relationship? Thanks, Indigo, for having me. Um, So TikTok is a Chinese video sharing social networking service owned by ByteDance, which is a Beijing-based technology company. And it's basically the international version of a Chinese app, which is called Douyin, um, uh, which is only available in China. Um, So essentially, it's a social media platform that features 15 second videos, mostly lip syncing, dancing or performing some kind of comedy um, that has become really popular um, in the last few years. And this sounds pretty benign (laughs) (laughs) on the face of it. It doesn't sound like something that would end up uh, in the middle of an international crisis. Um, How does TikTok fit into the context of US-China confrontation? (laughs) Yeah, so so the TikTok drama, if we want to call it that, has (laughs) unfolded as trade and security tensions between the US and China um, have have deepened um, in the last two to three years. Um, And in particular, in August this year, US President Trump signed an executive order threatening to ban TikTok and WeChat, uh, which is a Chinese uh, owned messaging app. And the reason given was that the companies uh, were said, but the US government posed a national security threat and risk and uh, could be required to turn over um, users' personal data to Beijing or to the government in Beijing. Um, So basically, in a nutshell, the US uh, main concern is TikTok and in this case WeChat also would allow Beijing to surveil American people and collect and use vast um, amounts of data um, from American citizens um, to advance its own political, strategic, security interests or what have you. so basically, the the way TikTok works is that it uses a highly intuitive algorithm that encourages crawling from one clip to another for like hours. But obviously, which is user- exactly why I have not downloaded it because <laughs> I know that I'm going to become completely addicted. Correct. It is meant to be addictive, <laughs> but the problem is that obviously, what security experts and politicians in the US are, are worried about is not just the time sucking nature of the app, which is bad in and of itself, but but the main concern is. Um, that that the platform could be used to, again, put together, compile a database um, of users that could then be shared with the Chinese Communist Party. So, I mean, why is this worse than any other app? Because we've known for a while that that social media apps um, or, or websites like Facebook, 
um, Instagram, Twitter, uh, really anything that they're, they are gathering data. Why is this a problem specifically with TikTok? Um, I think there's a number of reasons why TikTok has come at this TikTok and WeChat and, and other Chinese owned companies, to be honest, um, have come at the center of this, um, of these tensions, uh, right now. TikTok specifically has been downloaded about 2 billion times globally throughout the COVID-19 period um, since the start of the pandemic. It is also a relatively new app. So again, it kind of came into being at the moment where US and China tensions were already pretty high. Um, And most importantly, I think in the context of US and uh, sort of lead up to the elections, um, it's a popular platform for um, young political activists. So it has been used, for example, by um, 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 uh, young people to set up, uh, uh, coordinate Black Lives Matter protests, um, amongst other things. Now, the problem with this is not so much that they show political content, um, but that TikTok could target users in, um, for example, electoral swing states in the US to push or rather undermine a particular uh, a candidate or an agenda through, for example, promoting or censoring um, certain videos over others uh, and kind of tweaking uh, the algorithm. So essentially manipulating the algorithm to favor or disfavor videos posted by a certain candidates. So I think that these particular features have made it you know, uh, more urgent than it would have been otherwise. You mentioned the um, young, young activists. And I think one of my favorite uh, examples of this is the claim, at least, by um, K-pop fans, so Korean pop fans, that on, on TikTok, uh, that they managed to undermine a Trump rally where um, the organizers of the rally said that it was sold out and the tickets were free because, you know, it's a political rally. But in fact, at least this is what the fans on TikTok were saying, they had devised uh, a campaign through using TikTok, and and that's how they spread it virally, to get people to uh, basically reserve tickets so that the seats wouldn't be full. And I mean, indeed, the the stadium was empty. (laughs) Um, So that's an example of TikTok being used for something relatively benign. But obviously, like you're saying, there could be some very, very negative effects as well. Yeah, exactly. Going to more into the U.S. topic, so, I mean, even just in the last few weeks, there's been a lot of stuff in the news about, uh, well, is Microsoft going to buy TikTok? Uh, are other companies going to buy it? Um, how is that going to work politically? And then Trump was saying that he would he would allow it. And then he was saying he was going to ban it. And now most recently, a judge uh, ruled that TikTok cannot be banned right now because it essentially would be like closing the doors to a public forum. Um, so how how do these how are these two things existing? I mean, you're saying that it can be used for very nefarious purposes to basically manipulate people, but at the same time, um, there's an argument being made that it that it's the opposite. That if you got rid of it, it would be sort of in a way manipulating people's opinions. So leading up to the election, is it actually a concern that people are are being being surveyed, or, or is it a concern that there are data is being gathered right now? Or is it more of a concern that they don't have this so-called open platform? I mean, what are what should people actually be worried about here? Hmm. Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, and if I think about whether people should be worried in general about TikTok and other um, Chinese-owned apps, I would say the short answer is yes. 
Um, and there are many reasons and, and, and kind of different levels uh, uh, of, of this kind of being worried, um, I think. So the, the first most basic level is the kind of personal level, which comes down to data collection and to or uh, it's associated with the data collection part of these app um, uh, or these apps and the um, individual right to privacy. So it's questions such as, you know, do I want my data to be collected? Do I want companies or governments to know who I am? What do I do? Where I am? What I shop? What I eat? at any given moment, do I want this data to be stored and is my data stored safely? So this is a more private kind of sphere level. And then, then there is a national security level, which um, and this is where it kind of the personal level blends a little bit with the national, if you will, because it's not just an issue of personal privacy, right? It's not just, um, you know, some company knows where I am, but it's also a government in your country, in this case, the US being concerned that a foreign government, in this case, Chinese, um, knows exactly what its citizens are doing and where they are at any given time. Um, so on top of it, the risk, as I mentioned earlier, that the algorithms are manipulated to favor or disfavor a particular candidate essentially points to political interference. Um, and then there's a the third level, which is the more Orwellian or dystopian type, if you will, when not only the data on US or other citizens is being collected and shared, again, in this case with the Chinese government, but it's also that the data is used to train mass surveillance systems, whether they're CCTV cameras or facial recognition software. So, um, and, 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 and with these three levels, I don't mean to suggest there's a linear progression um, uh, from the first one to the others, but rather they feed into one another. And in fact, surveillance is in itself, in turn, a way to collect data as well. So this is why I think it's really interesting, the kind of interlinks you know, between these different aspects, which when you open the app and you just use it to watch cute cat videos, you don't really think about, but they do, they, they do feed into each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who knew that watching cat videos could put <laughs> your nation's security at risk? Um, nothing is sacred anymore. So, one funny thing about this is that, of course, we are talking about U.S.-China relations, and, and that's all that is very interesting, it's very relevant, it's relevant for other countries as well, but in this very sort of Western, U.S.-centric, Western-oriented um, conversation, we think, okay, TikTok or any other Chinese um, app or company is really interested in the U.S., but the thing is, there are plenty of other countries that are very, very lucrative and interesting for China. Um, and there are reasons to think that TikTok will just drop the U.S. I mean, there there are other places that it is used. Like you said, I mean, it's been downloaded two billion times just in the last few months. That's amazing. Um, and it can be very lucrative. So do you have some other examples of uh, companies or, or apps that have <laughs> also gotten into hot water or, or maybe not? Maybe they've just had a great upward trajectory. <laughs> Yeah, this is a really good question. And um, and in fact, I was just thinking about this, that, you know, sometimes this Western bias that we have leads us to think that really what happens in the US or in Europe in our case, or, you know, in Prio's case, is really all there is. But in fact, is that in, in other markets, and for example, I'm going to take Africa as an example, Chinese companies um, seem to be leading what is now called the you know, technological or AI race, if you will. And so there's a recent example, which is relevant to this case, I think, which happened this summer, um, so it's pretty recent, and um, and it's um, it's got to do with Transion Holdings, which is a Chinese company that um, dominates the African smartphone um, sector, 
and it has a market share of about 41%. Now, that in a continent of 1.2 billion people is quite a lot. Wow. Um, and uh, it's not that well known outside of the developing world. Um, uh, it's possibly best known for its brand Techno and, um, and Infinix. So through the Techno brand, um, it sells more mobiles uh, uh, in Africa than Apple and Samsung. Um, now, what happened this summer is that a report by an anti-fraud platform um, found that techno brand um, um, that Transient has been selling um, phones infected with malware uh, to African countries. Um, and it was found in techno brand phones operating on Android platform. Um, now, obviously, uh, Transion denied uh, uh, that this was, uh, you know, um, um, intentional, and they later blamed the incident on an unidentified vendor in the supply chain uh, process. Um, and obviously, it's it's really difficult to establish uh, whether this was a genuine accident or not. But it does point to the risk um, of of misuse of these kind of technologies. And like I said, especially because Transion is largely unknown. I didn't hear about it before reading about this incident, for example, but it is the fourth largest handset maker in the world wow. after Apple, okay. Samsung and Huawei. And it focuses specific on low income countries. Right. So I think that, um, yes, what happens in the US and Europe is important, but we shouldn't lose track of, you know, what happens in huge markets such as Africa. And I'm sure there's other um, examples of this in, in, you know, Latin America or Asia, for example. Uh, when we were talking about this, you mentioned Grinder. <laughs> What's going on there? <laughs> yeah, so there's a, a Grinder saga uh, which uh, started last year um, and continued into this year. Um, so the uh, Grinder is the world's possibly the most popular gay dating app, um, and it reached uh, it reached a deal this year to sell the platform about a year after a US um, regulators forced the company into disposal because of national security concerns. And again, these national security concerns point to the um, risks that the Chinese government could use uh, personal data given to the app by its 3.3 million users um, to blackmail US citizens, for example, um, over their sexual preferences, their um, HIV status. And I think the government was concerned, especially because Grindr users include or may include U.S. officials and military personnel, for example. Yikes. Okay, so we can't watch videos. <laughs> we can't uh, have any more gay hookups. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what is there left, Ilaria? Um, I'm not sure. Um, you know, in between, I guess, I guess it all comes down really to which companies are behind these products and which governments are behind these companies producing these apps really <laughs> oh read the fine print that's the lesson learned here <laughs> all right so just quickly putting this into the the norwegian and the european context um an analogous situation is perhaps huawei and uh i know that the the founder of ByteDance actually said explicitly that he looked to huawei for good business practices uh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Um, but can you walk us through a little bit of what's been going on there? Because it is a similar situation. Yeah, so um, so the debate in Europe um, around the use of Huawei again comes in, this kind of US-China tensions once again, where the US is really trying to use all the tools possible um, in the realm of foreign policy to kind of reign in China. Um, and um, so Huawei is a Chinese multinational technology company and amongst other things they provide um, communication services, they build telecommunication networks, they produce uh, mobile phones. 
um, and it is the world's second biggest um, manufacturer and one of the world's biggest suppliers of telecommunications equipment. So uh, if we take a few steps back, um, the US recently adopted a legislation which prohibits executive agencies from using Huawei or ZTE, which is um, Huawei's competitor um, products, from contracting with entities using such progress, uh, products, again, on national security grounds. Um, so the US has then put pressure on its allies, including countries in Europe, to follow the same uh, approach and so therefore ban um, Huawei. And some countries have, like Australia, for example, have done it and India has done it, um, or at least they said they were going to do it. Um, and uh, um, so again, the, the kind of main concerns behind this ban uh, is the potential risk that the close ties between Huawei and Chinese um, and the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party may expose liberal democracies to cyber attacks, cyber espionage, digital authoritarianism, information warfare, you name it. Uh, now, against this background, then you, you countries have been debating um, whether, to, um, um, whether to use uh, Huawei to build 5G networks. Um, so now, I should say that Huawei is already in many countries in the EU, including the UK and Norway, already part of 4G networks. So this is just the upgrade version, basically. Um, so, so the EU and countries within the EU, and I should say there's also a great variety of, <laughs> uh, of approaches and, and ideas within the EU itself as to what to do with this, have been considering, obviously, the security threat risks that the US um, has, has highlighted. But in addition to security, technical, legal and political considerations, the EU is also concerned about preserving its strategic autonomy against the backdrop of geopolitical pressure from the US and China. Um, so then many countries at the geopolitical level, many countries in the EU uh, don't want to either alienate the US nor antagonize China. And obviously it's going to be very tricky for the bloc to position itself in a geopolitical space that is dominated by these two countries and at the same time uh, not, you know, uh, 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 giving up on technology that is, I would say, if not necessary, but is really crucially important to economic growth within the bloc itself. Stuck between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> um, is there anything that you want to add? Is there anything that it's important for people to know about, yeah, about the situation, both as an individual user and as, as, as a citizen <laughs> in the world? Um, well, I would say that we are increasingly going towards a world where we talk about technological sovereignty, information warfare, uh, where basically it does matter who controls the data and the platforms that collect this data. Um, we may even be faced with a choice between technological advancement and privacy at some point, but perhaps we don't have to go there. Perhaps there is some kind of middle ground where the right to privacy, freedom of speech, and personal liberties can be upheld without impeding technological progress. And I mean, this may sound oversimplifying, but we are hearing increasingly about a US model, which is very market and to an extent private sector driven. And then we hear about the China model, which is very state driven and state controlled. And then there's a neo model, which is, as it's been defined, a bottom up um, a citizen focused approach, where the empowerment of its citizenry is really the most important aspect of any development on any technology. Uh, um, and and so, you know, it's the basic idea behind the GDPR, for example, the fact that I need to give my consent to the use of data, to the storage of data. And I think in this sense, and here I speak for myself, we are lucky, uh, you know, as citizens to be living in Europe um, because it does so much to protect, you know, our, our, our citizens' uh, lives. Um, and of course, it's not a perfect approach, the one that the EU is, um, is spearheading right now, but 
um, because you know again the the development of new technologies and new data um, is important presents opportunities for economic growth right um, but I also think uh, it is a it is a huge challenge um, for the number of reasons I highlighted earlier geopolitical security strategic um, which uh, and it's good to see that at least there is a conversation going on um, within Europe about this Thank you so much, Eladia. This was very enlightening. Thank you, Indigo. Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trikauger. Music by Martin Rennemull.